Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. You know, one of the great privileges of working here at Beeson are the wonderful folks we have visit and speak in chapel, and today I have the privilege of introducing you to John Stone Street. He's a friend of mine and a great speaker. He brought a wonderful message on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer Today. John, welcome to Beeson and to the podcast. Dr. George, thank you. It's an honor to be here and great to be on this beautiful campus. Now, let me give you a brief introduction, but then I I want you to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you became a Christian, how you kind of got into this line of work. John Stone Street is a speaker and a fellow of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. He speaks all over the country and also on Breakpoint, a Christian worldview radio program associated, of course, with the name of Chuck Colson for so many years. And now John and Eric Metaxas carry on this work as co-hosts. He's a graduate of Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee, also Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, a wonderful representative of the gospel and of Christian worldview thinking. Now, John, you take the ball and tell us really who you are. Well, the most important thing is my wife, Sarah, and I have been married for 10 years. We met through a ministry that I also work with called Summit Ministries, and uh, we have three little girls, Abigail, Anna, and Allie, so my house is pink and full of little princess stickers everywhere. What are their ages? Uh, they're uh, seven, five, and three. Oh, wow. And they're just uh, wonderful. And uh, we also have a dog that's the only male in the house with me. But, you know, working with Breakpoint is, is such an honor. Chuck Colson, you know, was a close friend of yours and a collaborator in so many important things. For me, he just kind of seemed like a larger-than-life hero figure and yet was so gracious and kind to let me work with him and uh, to be a part of this. So being a part of Breakpoint, of course, with Eric Metaxas, who Who's, uh, who's somewhere between brilliant and crazy <laughs> at the same time. It's, it's, it's really, you, you kind of look around and think sometimes, wow, I, can, I, I really get the opportunity to do these things. It's just a blessing. Now, we've talked about Chuck, and he, he went home to be with the Lord just about a year ago, and uh, we miss him a great deal. Mm-hmm. But as he would wish, the work that God gave him to do, both in the prison ministry and in Christian worldview, uh, shaping and forming, continues to go on. And Breakpoint and the Colson Center for Christian Worldview is a big big part of that. When you think about Chuck and uh, the vacuum in a way he's left uh, in our hearts and in our world, what is his legacy? What is his greatest legacy for this generation and this moment? Well, you know, it has been a year and it's been such a year to reflect on him and, and, and reflect on his work. I think it's a couple things. Uh, most importantly, Chuck made the church care about culture and cultural issues and cultural structures and probably most mostly embedded cultural ideas that the church just kind of didn't pay attention to. Francis Schaeffer, of course, had been talking about this for, for a couple decades, that we were entering a post-Christian world. Chuck warned of this. And now, you know, poof, here we are. And uh, their ideas, were, were, I think, were so important. So I, th- I think Chuck's just daily faithfulness and reading the New York Times and then translating it from a Christian viewpoint to everyone else is is really uh, direct heritage from his theological mentor, Abraham Kuyper, mm-hmm. the idea of claiming every square inch for Jesus Christ, yeah. who is the Lord of all. The other thing I, I think that, that he really did for this generation, I've been thinking a lot about this, Dr. George, 
um, there seems to be this rift between um, proclaiming truth and, and loving. And so you've got kind of an emerging evangelical generation saying things like, we just need to you know, serve the poor, we just need to care, we need to live the gospel, and so on. And then you've got some, mainly from the older generation, who are saying, we're losing things, we've got to stand on doctrine. Chuck held those two together in his own life, yeah. in his own ministry, Breakpoint and Prison Fellowship, both together. And I think he's somebody we can really look to in that regard, too. You know, in some ways, uh, I think of him in that way, like a kind of Martin Luther King, hmm. whom he held in great respect. Yes. And, you know, in our culture today, uh, we have a truth party and we have a freedom party. And that's kind of what you were talking about. This dichotomy within the evangelical world is also in the wider American yeah. culture. And Dr. King held those th two things together. He was deeply concerned about the truth, about mor moral truth. Uh, about the truth of conscience. At the same time, he was very committed to freedom, to liberation, mm -hmm. to loving. Uh, and Chuck was a, was that kind of figure. You're 100 percent right about that. Well, it's true. And, and you know, freedom without truth becomes slavery. It becomes licentious slavery. We become a slave to our own passions and our own desires. You know, right now, you know, just in the spirit of Chuck looking at culture, the Kermit Gosnell trial yeah. is certainly making um, – Tell us a little bit about uh, that in case someone well, hasn't heard. Well, it, it, yeah. I mean we wouldn't be surprised if you haven't heard because of the uh, the media blackout that has been happening for, for so long. So thankfully, some of that's turning over. But Kermit Gosnell was a, a, an abortion doctor in West Philadelphia, ran a clinic for 30 years there, was kind of hailed as an inner city hero because he had grown up there and kind of came back to give back. But really what he was running was a, a lucrative abortion business. And even though uh, late-term abortions are illegal in Pennsylvania, well known that was the place to go if you, if you wanted an abortion in the seventh, even eighth, ninth month. Well, there, there were all kind of strange reports coming out of the clinic. They, they didn't investigate. You know, Frederick Nietzsche has this line that life is a long obedience in the same direction. This is what's happened with, you know, what John Paul and, and, and Mother Teresa called the culture of death. We've marched a long obedience in the direction of death as a culture. And so despite the strange reports coming out of this clinic, no one went to investigate until they did back in 2010. And the grand jury report reads like a, a horror novel. In fact, they actually called the place a house of horrors, filthy, um, cats running around. I mean, bizarre cat, cat defecation on the floor, little fetal remains kept in jars, put on display on shelves. They even found some in the refrigerator where the workers kept their lunch. I mean, the play, it, was, it was almost like uh, they, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. W women drugged, laying around moaning because the people administering medica medication and uh, anesthesia weren't licensed. Even some of the mainstream reporters have called this a house of horrors. It, it, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine how bad this got. And so, you know, a woman lost her life because she was given the wrong dose of anesthesia by an unlicensed, you know, professional, non-professional, I guess. Um, now, you know, what they found was that this doctor really specialized in a process that he called snipping, where a uh, what you get with late-term abortions are babies that are born alive. And uh, Gosnell would take scissors to the back of their their neck and cut through their spinal cord, essentially beheading them. And one worker on, on trial says there's even been 100, 150 or so. Gosnell's on trial for eight counts of murder. In light of what we were talking about, about truth, truth and love, sexual morality has become so privatized, even vending machine abortion pills, right? No one else. It's no one's business but you. 
Well, when that happens, then it, when, when freedom is not accompanied by truth, freedom runs away with itself. And Gosnell, to me, is a perfect example of that. Yeah. He went unregulated in the name of freedom. He went uncritiqued. You know, these health inspectors were going to the lo- local yogurt shop every re- every week. They didn't go to his abortion clinic for 30 years because of freedom. Yeah. You've got to have the two together. Now, we've talked several times. We've used the word culture. And I want, I want to bore in on that a little bit. What is culture? And, uh, you know, Chuck was often accused, Chuck Colson, of being a, uh, much into politics. But he always made – of course, at one time in his life he was. He was, yeah. <laughs> uh, But he was converted and saved and uh, redirected in a wonderful way. And he always made the point that uh, politics is way downstream from culture. And if we want to change society, we want to change the world for the better, you don't begin with politics. You, you must change the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about what culture is and what that means. Well, you know, Chuck also would say that culture comes from the word cult. In, in other words, it's it's the tangible expression of a group of of what a group of people worship. And I think I think that's a really good understanding uh, of it because you know, there's people uh, w- when they're in communities or groups, they do things. They make clothes and they design educational programs. They pass laws. They have politicians, and these things become kind of structural realities in people's lives. But they're embedded with ideas about how the world works, about what's true and what's right and wrong, and how do you know and who gets to set the rules and and so on. And and culture is then is an expression of the deeply held beliefs of a group of people. But it takes these very tangible forms of cultural goods like magazines or movies or TV shows or laws, you know, or they also take the form of institutions like Beeson Divinity School or Sanford University or or churches or um, civic groups or whatever. And, and, and so when we talk about culture, we have to care about culture because it's a tangible way of loving our neighbors, right? So this is Bonhoeffer to a T. There, there came a point for Bonhoeffer where he realized to love his neighbor meant more than just saying hi to the Jewish neighbor that no one else talked to. It actually meant trying to stop his government from killing the Jews. Mm. There was a cultural aspect. Culture brings life. Culture can bring death. And so that's why it's a proper area of Christian concern. Absolutely. You mentioned Bonhoeffer, and you actually spoke on Bonhoeffer here at Beeson today in our chapel, in our Bonhoeffer series that we've been uh, listening to this whole semester. Uh, And I wanted to ask you to recap just a little bit of what you said, because you had a number of wonderful things, but your main point was the importance of being all in. You used that several times for Bonhoeffer as an admonition to us. What do you mean by that? Well, f- first, Dr. George, let me just tell you what an honor it was to be a part of the series. And I have been listening to that series online. And if any listener has not caught that, they need to go online and listen to this. You had some some stunning folks. And Bonhoeffer is such an important figure. The thing that struck me most as I was looking at this topic, Bonhoeffer, for today, was that for Bonhoeffer, the only Christianity there was was one that was directly tied to the real world of the human condition and the human predicament. There, there was no esoteric Christianity that did not have actual feet on the ground that could be considered Christianity. It wasn't escapist for him. Christianity was an all-in thing because we had a God who came all-in. Mm. God, God in a manger, he once said in an early Advent sermon. For Bonhoeffer, ethics wasn't just theoretical. It was how you make really hard decisions. And of course, he was faced with those really hard decisions where he had to ground his, not only ground his faith in the truth, but he had to actually walk then into the world. And for him, I I think it really came from an understanding that that God came all in with Mm. us. I mean, from the very beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, God 
comes all in to his people. He comes and visits. He walks with his people. He uh, judges his people. He blesses his people. He came in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ ascends. The, God, the Holy Spirit, comes and dwells among us. In the new heavens and new earth, he's going to tabernacle among us. God's all in in the human condition. And so as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have to be as well. So Bonhoeffer also says when Christ calls a man to follow him, he bids him come and die. So there's a price to be paid for being all in. And today it seems to me uh, in a lot – even of our evangelical Christian culture, there's this sense of we don't need to be that engaged. This is the world. This is going to happen anyway. Let's withdraw into ourselves. Let's take a sabbatical from speaking to these issues. Uh, Speak to that as you see it today in the world of the evangelical church in particular. You know, Dr. George, we we were talking about this and – one of the, the letters I quoted this morning is when Bonhoeffer calls Christianity this worldly. And uh, interestingly enough, he wrote that letter, as we know, uh, the day after he learned that the final plot against Hitler's life failed. Hitler was now aware of the conspiracy, and that means Bonhoeffer's not getting out of prison. That means he's not going to marry his beloved Maria. He's not going to see his, his close friends anymore. He's not going to see his parents. He's going to die, and he knows this. And he, he says that – the only sort of way to learn how to have faith is to be all in in this world. Uh, and, and, you know, that's what Jesus prays. Jesus prays for his disciples and says, um, Father, don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. So it's an essential part of our spiritual development, Bonhoeffer believed, to be all in, to be all in this world, not take a hiatus, not hide from heart issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, love of God and love of neighbor requires caring about human structures because God cares about them, first of all. He cares about what happens to those made in his image. And to abandon these issues is to abandon – to to abandon the abortion issue right now would be to abandon uh, little image bearers into the hands of abortionists. That, that's just not something that we should tolerate. You know, Bonhoeffer once used the analogy, if he – if you see someone – you know, driving drunk down a street, um, you know, and taking people out. You have to do something. Silence, he said, in the face of evil is evil itself. He said, you put a spoke in the wheel. You do whatever it takes, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, that's what he ended up trying to do unsuccessfully yeah. in the, the plot to assassinate yeah, and, and Adolf course, Hitler. Yeah, and we're not talking about going to assassinate culture's leaders. We have other – God has blessed us in a situation where we have other ways to – to make our voice known, to 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 stand, but um, because people have done it wrongly, maybe in the past, is not an excuse to not do it correctly today. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, part of your ministry, ongoing, is with Summit mm-hmm. Summit Ministries in Colorado, and uh, that's a ministry that has a focus particularly on young people, mm-hmm. high school, college age age young people, in trying to give a shape to their own way of thinking Christianly about the world. It seems to me, or at least I, it's my impression that. Uh, we're facing a kind of generational crisis in a way as more and more of the younger generation don't share some of the older values that we associate with Christian worldview thinking. Uh, am I wrong about that? Or how do you see the generational question as someone who works all the time uh, with young people coming on? I think it's, you're absolutely right. There is a generational gap. Well, two things I think are at the cause of that. One is there, there's been a lot of transmission of values but not necessarily transmission of worldview. In other words, there's been a lot of the what but not a lot of the why. 
there's been a lot uh, of here's what Christians believe, here's how Christians behave, here's how Christians believe, here's how Christians behave. And then it comes to an issue like same-sex marriage, mm-hmm. where their most deeply held values of this emerging generation are things like tolerance and non, being non-judgmental. Well, why – without the why behind Christians' view on marriage – then that view just goes out the window, and that's what we're seeing. The second thing is obviously the relational breakdown. Um, These sorts of values are deeply passed on primarily through the home and through the church. And when these things – institutions aren't healthy, you see a younger generation come up that's not very healthy in their beliefs. And it really matters. It really matters, not only because we're losing things like marriage, which is an institution without which society can't survive – but you know, we did a breakpoint, and you may have seen this, Dr. George, last week on the Steubenville rape case. The most stunning part of that was not just what was – horrific things were done to this girl directly, but it was the indirect pacifism. This is Bonhoeffer, silence in the face of evil is evil, where, where these, these, these other kids watched what happened and did nothing. Relativism breeds passivity. The most deeply held belief of this emerging generation is that there's no such thing as truth upon which we can all agree. And then, well, if that's the case, then how do you actually tell someone we're wrong? I mean, that's what they hear. Don't tell anyone sexually they're wrong. Don't tell anyone morally they're wrong. And then you get some of these extreme cases like Gosnell or like the Steubenville case, and we wonder why they didn't say anything. So there's a real crisis uh, in that. And it, it, so you're right. It, it, underneath it all is this belief and understanding of what's actually true. Now, we're speaking to listeners, some of whom are pastors or perhaps uh, Christian people in their churches. Uh, would you say a word to those who have responsibility for leading a congregation of God's people or maybe just a Sunday school class, something like that? How do we infuse the kind of Christian worldview formation that I think you and I agree on is really necessary if we're going to be faithful to Jesus Christ in a time like this? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think um, when we teach worldview, we often use a triangle. And so at the base of the triangle is worldview, and built upon that are values, and built upon that are behaviors or actions. And we need to get to the values and the actions, but we need to, un- uh, underneath all of that, build a foundation of the sort of world we actually live in. That's the fundamental debate right now. This is one of the things that Bonhoeffer picked up too. But the fundamental debate is not just over same-sex marriage or over uh, life or even over religious liberty or some of the issues we care about. The fundamental issue is whose world is it actually? For for many Christians, it's it's like Jesus is the sprinkling on a very secular worldview. So we've got to back up and say, well, wait a minute. Start from creation. Talk about fall. Talk about redemption. Paint the biblical narrative. Uh, you know, and this is an important thing. When Scripture says it's true, it's not claiming to be true for us. It's claiming to be true. Mm. Scripture actually reflects the way the world actually is. The world we live in is the one described in the Scriptures, uh, one in which every human we've ever met is made in the image of God, one in which uh, every human intention and, and structure is corrupted by, by sin, but one in which Christ has risen. Right, And so we can build, I think, an understanding, a proper understanding of human nature, a proper understanding of how the world works. Uh, and and, and what, what that means then is, is when it comes to sermons, when it comes to Bible lessons, we, we maybe need to get away from some of the therapeutic ways of saying things. And let's get back to the worldview ways of saying things. Talk about truth with a capital T, as Schaefer would say it, and certainly Chuck Colson would say. 
If any of our listeners would like to contact the Breakpoint or the Colson Center, give us a word about how to do that. Well, listen, you can hear uh, Eric Metaxas and I on Breakpoint every day, five days a week. Um, and uh, you can find our radio broadcast at breakpoint.org. There's also some other radio products there. You can download our app, uh, iPhone app and Android app, which is a lot of fun. It'll deliver it right to your smartphone, all the different programs that we have. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been John Stone Street, co-host with Eric Metaxas of Breakpoint, a Christian worldview radio program founded by Chuck Colson and heard every week on hundreds of stations across America. Thank you so much, John, for being here today. It's been an honor. Thanks. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.